the 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 coolest thing for me about participating and seeing all these people with different disabilities just just like how amazing each person's story is to get them to be competing at this elite level um given what they likely had to go through um whether it was uh limb loss for me my limb loss was congenital so i was born without the leg um but other people have traumatic limb loss they are uh wounded warriors um so just like the fact that given a disability uh you're at a bit of a disadvantage when you go to participate in sport because you maybe you need adaptive equipment or maybe you need special training or supervision and so to see people competing at the highest level of the sport is just remarkable this episode of the smart athlete podcast is brought to you by solpre skincare for athletes whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to soulpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a certified personal trainer, uh, but that's just the start of it. He's also a PhD student in rehabilitation sciences, and he participated in the Paralympic swim trials. Welcome to the show, Travis Pollan. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. So, Travis, before we got going, Travis and I were going, we, we've been talking probably for about 15 minutes now, and I'm like, all right, we need to stop <laughs> so we can actually get going with the real thing. Um, so, Travis, back me up and everybody else uh, a little bit. We were talking about um, your, so you have a background in swimming and you, you did the Paralympic trials. Kind of, I guess, let's back up a second and re-explain what we were just talking about, and we'll catch everybody up and continue with our conversation. Sure. So, so I tried out for the Paralympics in 2012 in swimming, um, and I was talking about a little bit how uh, the the classification system works uh, in swimming, which I know best. Um, but there are classes in all various Paralympic sports, and how the participants are selected to go on to compete in the Paralympics, and how that sort of compares to the Olympic Games, um, and I like. I was just basically the 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 coolest thing for me about participating and seeing all these people with different disabilities just just like how amazing each person's story is to get them to be competing at this elite level um given what they likely had to go through um whether it was uh limb loss for me my limb loss was congenital so I was born without the leg um but other people have traumatic limb loss they are uh, wounded warriors. Um, so just like the fact that given a disability, uh, you're at a bit of a disadvantage when you go to participate in sport because you, maybe you need adaptive equipment or maybe you need special training or supervision. And so to see people competing at the highest level of the sport is just remarkable. Yeah. So I was, I was telling Travis about my coach who coaches a Paralympic athlete who was in the Olympics this last time, um, Sean Morelli. She's a cyclist. And if you want to know more about Sean, you can go back to episode one where I talked to my coach and we talk a little bit about Sean there um, and kind of her whole story. But yeah, she's a wounded warrior and kind of came to cycling after, you know, being honorably discharged from the military uh, and went on to, spoiler alert, win gold medal in Rio. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, her story was really, really great. So it's like people come to the Paralympics from all, I'll say all different walks of life, but all different kinds of scenarios. So it's like everybody has their own story and things to overcome. And I think Travis, that's what you're saying. It's just like, the, you know, in Sean's case, she isn't physically disabled, but um, she does have some kind of mental condition. And I, I just don't recall what my coach had mentioned um, that she has to deal with that, you know, as you mentioned, leaves people more apt to be sedentary because there are more hurdles to overcome. You know, think about the average American who's overweight and there's nothing technically wrong with most of them. Whereas, okay, now you don't have a limb, there's extra equipment you need. And I, I don't mean this in a, I mean this in an empathetic way, but I know that going from running, which is basically put put some shoes on and head out the door, to triathlon, which is like gather all your shit. You have a bike and you have all this equipment. You've got to, it's it's such a pain. It's it's a super pain. So I can only imagine like 
having to have equipment no matter what to go be active. So yeah, that, or it's even, a mental hurdle. Yeah, or even like so I started rock climbing a few years ago and I just did my first adaptive competition a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. And that's another one where per- personally I'm able to just hop on the wall. Um yeah. I actually, I don't even use my prosthesis for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, just feel more comfortable without it. Of course, you need rock climbing shoes or shoe in my case for that. Um, but other people who I was competing against, um, they don't, they can't take ground falls. So it was a bouldering competition. So there were, with bouldering, there are no ropes and the maximum height is maybe 14 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some of these people who are participating, um, they aren't able to tolerate jumping off of the wall uh, that you can climb down if you're able to, but you don't, you don't always plan when you're going to fall. Right. So anyway, they, for each of the routes, you could opt to boulder as normal without a harness or they had ropes available. Mm-hmm. Um, but the point is if you don't take ground falls, then you always need someone to belay you. Yeah. And so now which is always true in um, top rope climbing. You right. always need a second person, which is why I prefer bouldering because I can just get up and go. Right. Uh, but that's a, a good instance where like somebody who is missing a leg but can't jump off the wall, now they can't just get up and go rock climb because they need somebody to go with them, uh, which is fine. You know, it's it's a collaborative and community-based sport. Um, but it's not as simple as I just want to go out for a run, right? Just need to lace up my shoes and go. Uh, there are other, you know, hurdles equipment wise and, uh, just people wise that are needed. Right. I think that's something that I, I know I certainly take that for granted sometimes. I mean, we are as humans, I believe we're social creatures though. I'm, fairly introverted and independent. So I spend a lot of time by myself and doing my own thing. And that's kind of what I want to do. But I know that, you know, in that situation, especially it it forces you to have, you know, somebody else to do the thing you want to do. I mean, in a more mundane scenario, you think about, so I've been able to post post collegially continue to compete and do my thing because it's an individual effort. But you know, the, the guys that play football or play soccer or any of the team sports no longer have a team do your thing. I think, yeah, I think that's really like a huge uh, hurdle to overcome after, let's say you played in college, after you graduate college, um, maybe you can find a rec soccer league um, mm-hmm. to play in, or uh, I don't know what other sports I'm sure they're playing basketball, but yeah, yeah, they're not going to find a rec football league, at least not contact. Right. Uh, might find flag, and maybe that's enough. But I, I often think, I think that's why former athletes often will flock to CrossFit because mm-hmm. it's an, it's like an example of okay, we have that community element, we have the competitive element because we're mm-hmm. racing the clock. And that is missing from a lot of people's lives once they leave the system that made it so easy to engage in their physical activity with their community. Yeah. And well, and it, to, to me, too, it's, it's a sense of identity. It's not just it's like th- this is who I am. And it could be, you know, say I like I have a friend who um, he, was, he played soccer in college and he eventually transitioned to triathlon, but he played. Um, I think he played in USL and he wanted to make it to MLS and he just didn't quite make it. And so he had to do this identity transition from soccer player to triathlete. Um, And I know he had trouble with that. Plus there's like physical adaptations and it goes from this very team activity to hours and hours and hours of very intense activity by yourself in isolation so not only are you dealing with the physical changes you're dealing with the the mental changes and that you know that all comes together both for the average athlete and then for you know anybody that's dependent on somebody else to go do their thing you know yeah and it he it's awesome that he found triathlon because a lot of people will i guess not just not see that as an option and frankly, mm-hmm. it's not a great option because it is individual. And if you really do love that team aspect, um, then you're not going to have that, right? Yeah. Um, I remember when I was doing my master's degree, a friend of mine, his name's Dan Feeney, he 
was like a national level triathlete, um, but he had come from uh, mostly a track background or cross country. Mm-hmm. And the, at the university, the team had been uh, next. And so he was having to do a lot of his training on his own now. Um, and so like very infrequently, he would ask me to come and swim with him. Yeah. I knew that when he was asking me to, it was because he was really desperate for just somebody to go through, like, not that I could keep up with them by any stretch of the imagination, but just for somebody to go through a couple of hours of training with him, given that he was training 20 hours a week on his own in the winter, sometimes yeah. in the cold, yep. walking, uh, of course, swimming inside. But um, the, the individual aspect of that, I, I really saw that in him, like just the amount of stick to it takes relative to like, yeah, swimming is an individual sport, but the rest of the team is there. If they're working hard, I'm going to work hard too. Um, and that's just a different uh, dynamic than when you are on a team, like a football team, soccer team, basketball team, whatever. Yeah. The only solace we kind of had, and this is where I, I met Kevin is we were kind of part of this uh, development pipeline trying to get, college athletes and turn them into pro triathletes yeah i kind of snuck my way in i always i always say i'm very fortunate to have been there since i didn't really make the so like the it, there's qualifying standards basically to get the free coaching like free full-time coaching i kind of had part-time coaching from uh barb linkos to his former pro and um stanford all-american swimmer and blah blah, blah lots of great things she was in charge of this program at the time so we we got together at nationals and a couple other like high profile races during the year, like amateur races. And that definitely helped the sense of like community and team. Cause it's like, we're all here and we can kind of, you know, talk during the year. Like um, Todd Buckingham, who I've had on the show twice, episode, I think three and 29, he's from that group. Um, and, so like Todd lives in Michigan, Kevin lives in Cleveland, like we're all across the U S So none of us. Well, I guess one girl actually does live here in Kansas city with me, but um, for the most part, we're all spread out, but we could still have some semblance of team. And then I think we all, at least I felt this way going to these high profile events. And then we would do camps or clinics before and after the race with Barb. And it was definitely like, back in college, like this intense training, we're all together. It's like you immediately click cause you're all doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, and if by chance anybody is a collegiate athlete that wants to turn pro, um, that group is now run by, um, Olympic triathlete, Joe Malloy. Barb has moved on, but, um, Google it. <laughs> Joe's great too. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something to miss where you don't, you don't have those, yeah and you can so you can foster those communities online um to keep up with people and commiserate uh share training tips but of course it's not the same as going out each day and training with training partners yeah so in in your case i have i have no cost so just treat me like i'm an idiot i have no concept of like should like your speed in the pool versus i'll say you know a non-paralympic athlete like, are you training at the same speed? Um, are you, you know, just swimming out with a regular swim team and then you go to yeah. a different trial? Or? Well, so this is something that I get asked a lot. I, like, for a little while, I was the disability or diversity uh, like chairperson for Mid-Atlantic Swimming. And so I would get parents emailing me, like, how I have a kid with disability. Um, what are the resources for them? And so I could first share my experience, which was that um, I started swimming my sophomore year of high school. So I actually got kind of a late start competitively. I swam in my neighbor's pool since I was a little kid. But um, when I started, I was very slow, Um, like anybody who's never swam laps before for a couple hours at a time. Um, but over the period of a high school season, I became somewhat competitive with my able-bodied teammates. Mm-hmm. Um, and by my third season, I was, I wouldn't say I was like 
Very well. I was the second, I think the second or third fastest backstroker on the team. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, I wasn't I wasn't breaking school records, um, but I was competitive in meets and I was scoring points. Right. Right. When I got to college, uh, I swam Division three, and so I didn't score any points in college meets. Uh, mm-hmm. I was slower than the com- the competition, but I was my, like my speed was akin to the fastest females on the team okay. or, the, or, or on the women's team. So yeah. like my 100 freestyle was competitive with the top women's 100 freestyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was my best event, 50 and 100 free. Um, so from that standpoint, I was able to keep up in practice with the regular team. Um, I was not the slowest person, but I wasn't close to the fastest person either. When we would use a pull buoy and paddles, I was the fastest person because I I wasn't kicking anyway and I was super strong in my upper body. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, that's sort of where I, that like the men and women in my college team, we all trained together because we had a 10 lane pool. Yeah. Um, So I, like I was able to find people who I could like work off of and try to race in the pool. And maybe it was a a male swimmer, maybe it was a female swimmer. Um, But I know for other adaptive athletes, uh, let's say you, I don't know, my, like my disability classification is class nine out of 10. So Mm -hmm. the classification 10 would be like um, minor weakness in one limb. Maybe you're missing a hand or maybe you have a club foot. So I'm one tier down. there were there were certainly adaptive swimmers who I saw at Paralympic trials who were not swimming like if 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 the best swimmers on my college team were here and I was here then people you know maybe you're missing both arms and your stroke is a dolphin kick that's right. gonna be that might necessitate that you're not doing hundreds uh, hundred repeats on the one twenty or one thirty you're just right. not right. you don't have the limb power for that right so. Right. Um, for kids who are uh, like they're they're either one their ability isn't there yet to swim with the um, the same you know the people who are their age who are not disabled um, then they have to find other resources right like maybe a team with a lot of lane space can afford to give a lane to somebody like that mm-hmm. um, but also now they're needing like special training program, um, the, a coach who's training that lane separately from everybody else. So it's, it's a challenge. And I think, and like, I think the best case scenario is that you can get that person onto like in a, in an environment where there are other people, their age or close to their age who are training, even if they're doing something slightly different. Um, Mm -hmm. but that it's not always practical in a six lane pool with, I don't know, 40 other people. Yeah, it was like 30, 40. Just, yeah, to accommodate this person who's not even on the same, just just on a, in, a, in a different part of their training and physical development than everybody else. So, you know, when, when parents would email me, I would, I would try to just explain that um, and make those suggestions. I, I think, yeah. I think there, there's often, you know, parents are looking for coaches with, uh, experience working with adaptive athletes and that that's great. But I, I think most coaches can probably figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to get experience to have experience, right? So right. if the coach is willing to work with somebody like that, then awesome. It's just, it is tough when the lane space and resources aren't available. Yeah. Well, it seems like it, it just, it's one of those like things where you, you just have to say, it depends. Like, like when somebody approaches you and says, you know, how can you help? What, what can we do? It depends. You know, like I, um, see that I hadn't thought about this, uh, this guy in a while who is, um, I'll say I had a friend, I, I knew him through class. We weren't like best friends by any stretch of the imagination. His name is Johnny who also had a congenital location similar to yours. I don't know what it was, but he was missing a leg mm-hmm. and that man was a beast in the weight room. Like we, we had weightlifting class together and he played on the football team. Um, and he just, I remember he was, he was lifting like college kind of weights in high school. Like, I think 
he was at like 350, 360 pounds for bench press. Just bananas. <laughs> and yeah. we, so we never really like, obviously he, he, he didn't wear prosthetic. He used um, crutches, but like. And he played football with crutches? He was, a kick, he was the kicker on the football team. With crutches? Mm-hmm. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. So, but so like. It was like, yeah, Johnny was missing a leg, but like he didn't act like, oh, woe is me. And we certainly didn't act that way either. It was just like, this is Johnny, you know. Having been, I identify with that because that's kind of my my mo as well. Like having been born without a leg, mm. uh, that's just normal for me. It's always been that way. Yeah. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a limb traumatically yeah. if I if I knew what it had been like to have two. Right. Um, and of course, sometimes I wonder like, oh, it would be nice to uh, go for a run with two legs or how fast would I be swimming with two legs? Um, mm-hmm. But there are so many other things that I can do that other people can't like rock climbing, like monk- I'm like a monkey on the wall. Like yeah. it's, sometimes it's actually an advantage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I never, never really thought of myself as different. And that's why it, like it was really important to me that I was able to swim with my, like my other high school teammates and just, just fi- I found a sport where I could compete normally. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though I was at a disadvantage, like if I worked harder then I could get right up with those other kids, mm-hmm. uh, I will say that the last six months before time trials for Paralympics in 2012, I joined a club team mm-hmm. and the, so it was middle school and high school swimmers. Mostly um, the coach, his name's Charlie Kennedy. He's kind of, famous in our area at least he worked with a former olympian named brendan hansen breaststroker um but anyway at, given the various levels of the swimmers who i was swimming with i was in a lane with like 12 to 13 year old girls mm-hmm. uh because they, these girls were amazing yeah and i was okay uh but the, <laughs> the high school kids were just too amazing for me to even yeah come close to um but it's funny because to this day, this eight years later now, I keep up with two of those girls. They're now like graduate students and co- uh, like they finished college. And it's just like I made lifelong friends. And it, it's kind of funny. Like I was 18. They were 12, but they were just the coolest kids. Yeah. Um, and so the the opportunities that you get when you are able to swim with other people, even if they are younger than you or they have all their limbs and you don't, it's just being a part of a team is really cool. Yeah. Well, it makes you think about two things. First, my um, my high school cross country coach, one of them, also coaches uh, girls swim. So when I was getting into triathlon, he would always tell me, you know, like, I'd be like, you know, this is kind of where I'm at time wise, and he'd be like, you know, congratulations, that's great. Always remember, somewhere out there, there's a ten year old that can kick your ass. Like, yep. <laughs> don't don't get too full of yourself. Not that I was trying to, but he would he he would never like let me live that moment for more than about five seconds before he'd be like, "There's somebody less than half your that's, age." That's, that's great that you got a PR, but I know an eight year old who right, <laughs> right. Um, but also thinking about it's like the age difference. Like, obviously, there's some maturity difference between twelve and eighteen year old, but there are still things that just as people as athletes as competitors that kind of cross those age boundaries that don't seem to have so much difference because of that age those girls trained so hard yeah Uh, they had great attitudes and it rubs off like yeah especially compared to some of my college teammates that didn't always train as hard and granted the life stressors in college versus high school are different yeah Uh, i was at like one of the top liberal arts schools in the country i understand that not that we were students first and athletes second, or yeah. most of the people were. I kind of viewed myself as like equal parts both just because I had these Paralympic aspirations. But that wasn't the case with most of the people. They were there primarily for the academics and the swimming was kind of a side thing. Um, right. But so it was refreshing to be able to train with these people who were just uh, like more blissfully in love with the sport and not as jaded as we tend to get when we're in our twenties and we've already been swimming for 10 years. And right. 
Like, yeah, I mean, bur- yeah. burnout starts to like creep up on a lot of people, and yeah, well, I, I think it happens too. Like at that level, you're not always, especially for women who will tend to peak somewhat earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not always continue. Like they're not on this upward trajectory anymore, right? Um, versus these like these little kids, they get a PR every meet, like taper right. or not, it doesn't matter. So. Um, it, it was cool to just experience the love of the sport at that age uh, or with people sur- surrounded by people at that age. And I yeah. never got to experience that growing up because I didn't start until I was a few years older than them. So yeah, it was a great experience. Yeah. And I would guess, I don't know. My, my coach now has, um, I think his daughter's in swim. So he's now a, a swim parent, but from what I know from him, it seems like, Swim parents are very, like, supportive, positive group of people in general. Yeah, I think you have to be to take your kid to morning practice at <laughs> 5.30 a.m., right? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Day after day after day, week after week, year after year. Just waiting for the kids to get their driver's license, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's going to be a long slog because you, you can start club at, what, 6? Oh, God, like that. Yeah the age that could start now yeah uh, that's another conversation in terms of like early specialization and right long-term athletic development i think kids are probably becoming year-round swimmers too early now and uh that's not really a good thing for them but it's it's tough i mean it seems like you're missing out if you're taking time away from the sport but mm-hmm it seems, and I, I don't know what the research is like in swimmers, but I know in like the, the major sports, it seems that you're going to be better off if you continue playing multiple sports, like at least through middle school, if not through high school. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I know like anecdotally, I've had, I've had other guests talk about um, having done multiple sports kind of led them to a place of, being more competitive because they didn't have the injuries and the burnout and yeah. all those kind of things, even mentally of, of doing that early specialization or they, mm-hmm. they had a, you know, the ability to break and go do this thing and enjoy that for a while and then come back. And they yeah. would, and some of them, I think I'm trying to remember, I think Ben Martin, who is um, Canadian, he's on the Canadian Olympic field hockey team in 2016. I think he talked about, playing different sports basically up until the point he started field hockey late and then somehow made um, the Canadian team. What a, what a um, freak. Right. Well, part of it he talks about just like there's not a huge pool and he just slowly, he used that determination to work him, work his way into shape, both like skills wise and physically to be able to do it. Um, God, I'm trying to remember what he's doing. He, He's either doing or finished his PhD on. Uh, I have to I have to go back and watch the episode. It's either episode forty three or forty four. I just had him on a couple of weeks ago. But um, cool. Thinking about specialization, though, uh, I, I saw in your bio you had mentioned um, there was a, a point where you moved from like bodybuilding type um, workouts to functional training. Sure. Um, so I kind of want to talk a little bit about that and kind of how I'll, you approach. I'll talk uh, to you lifting about now. Yeah. So, so the, the background here is that I, in high school, I, I got, I was, as I started swimming, I realized that there was this other thing that I could do on land to help me with swimming, um, lifting weights. And so I got books out from the library. The, the first one that I got out was called Getting Stronger and it was by a bodybuilder named Bill Pearl. And so I, remember going down to the uh, the basement of the YMCA with my library book um, and doing these bodybuilding exercises, which aren't drastically different from the exercises that I do now, but it's sort of the, the implementation of that, which I'll get to in a minute. So uh, I did that for a few years and then realized that I the, the book knowledge was great, but I would benefit more from working with the personal trainer myself. Mm-hmm. So I hired one, worked with her for a couple of years in the off seasons while I was home from, uh, from college, um, made a lot of strides in strength during that time. And then that was actually the impetus to, after I finished college, 
going and getting my diploma in personal training from the National Personal Training Institute, which was the same place that the personal trainer that I had hired had gotten her mm-hmm. diploma. So, um, and now I'm, I've been personal training for the last seven years. So um, the, the evolution of the thought process was that, and this is something that I see often with people who are first starting out lifting is that uh, it's sort of, people think that all lifting is the same, I guess. And the, the sort of mainstream thinking is like a body part split. So Monday's chest day uh, or chest and triceps, let's say everybody's going to bench press. And then Wednesday is back day and Friday is leg and shoulders day or whatever. And so the, but basically when you do that, you're really hammering one or two muscle groups, uh, in a given workout. Um, and then you're waiting a week to hit those again. Mm-hmm. And so the converse of that would be what I would call full body training or a full body split. So it's really the opposite of split training. Instead of doing a couple of body parts at a time, you're going to do exercises for all parts of your body or, or your upper body, your lower body muscles on the front of your body, the muscles on the back of your body, all in one workout. And so the thinking behind that as it pertains to athletes uh, is that the body works as one unit, not Mm -hmm. as isolated parts. And so that's one thing. So we should train it that way in the gym. And then the other piece to that is that if you are, um, if you do full body training each session, then you can train each muscle group more frequently. Like maybe I have two days per week that I'm doing lower body or two days per week that I'm doing upper body or however many days you're training. And so that increased frequency um, might be better depending on a lot of things, but might be better for athletes. Um, I know for me, like I would do my chest and triceps day on Monday, but then my triceps would be so fried that when I would go to get in the pool later that day or the next day, like my performance is at like, like so decreased because my, I had fried those muscles and then I couldn't do those types of workouts the day before a competition because I didn't want it to impair competition. So in hindsight, what I should have been doing all along was full body training. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what what full body and training entails, like I said, it's it's doing exercises for your upper body and your lower body all in one workout. Um, but it's also doing the exercise selection is slightly different. So it's focusing on exercises that would have a more systemic approach or a systemic impact on your body. So instead of doing bicep curls, I would do pull-ups. I shouldn't say instead of. In addition to doing bicep curls. I should first prioritize pull-ups, which are working my biceps and my lats, because that's working two joints at once. It's also working my abs um, from a stabilization standpoint. And so that's where like, I'm trying to connect all the different body parts together. So pull-ups, push-ups, squats, deadlifts, um, bench press is great, um, any, any sort of rowing variation. So those are like the, the meat and potatoes exercises. And then you can supplement that stuff with the single joint exercises, um, with the shoulder rotator cuff sort of prehabilitation exercises that you would want to do from a swimming standpoint to keep your shoulders healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I've, I've at, over time, I've learned more about how to choose the exercises to give me the desired training effect, um, like way more now than I knew then. And of course, I wish I knew what I knew now when I was swimming, um, but all I can do now is pass that knowledge on. So I'm, I'm working with one Olympic hopeful actually um, for this coming Olympic games, whenever they happen. Um, yeah. But she's a 200 butterflyer and I've been riding her dry land for about a year and change. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she actually, she did her first muscle up like three days ago without mm-hmm ever training to do a muscle up like we do i have her do pull-ups all the time right and she was and her boyfriend who's uh he had just he had been working on muscle ups for a while and he finally got his and she's like oh i'm gonna i'll try one of course she gets it and uh her boyfriend's pretty salty because he's been trying to he's been working on them for so long and then she's just so strong and lean that she did it on her first try yeah no Um, problem but that that's sort of the idea is like okay we're gonna get really strong so that 
we can do anything that we try to do from a sporting standpoint or from a movement standpoint. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to make a, like a generalization, um, obviously, if you want to become a bodybuilder and, you know, be into bodybuilding and be the next Arnold, then you should do like probably more isolation to yeah. try to build. Train, train like a bodybuilder. Train like a bodybuilder. If, you're gonna, if you're an athlete, then there's bodybuilding training and then there's like you could call it functional training although that's kind of a bastardized buzzword term now right because if you look at functional training you'll see a lot of like weird instability exercises um you could call it sports specific training but that's also a buzzword um because there you can take it too far like um let's say you're a tennis player uh like attaching a resistance band to a tennis racket and trying to mimic your strokes like right there's a fine line between too much sports specificity where you're actually like doing that actually probably impairs your motor performance on the swing when you take the resistance band off because you're changing the force velocity relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and anyway, so so basically sports specific training is really about identifying the like the general movement patterns that are required for, for your sport um, and then mimicking the energetic demands in the weight room. So for a sprint freestyler, that's gonna be like, um, uh, pull-ups are really, you know, you can see the transfer between pull-ups, doing this and doing this in the pool. Um, And then doing them uh, with added weight to be, uh, to have more of a power um, development standpoint. Or if you're a distance freestyler, um, doing band assisted chin-ups where you're doing higher reps because that's going to have a little bit more carryover to longer races to train the endurance aspect of this, the strength of your mm-hmm. like back musculature. So, but it doesn't have to be like, um, I don't know, trying to do weird things in the gym that look like the freestyle stroke or whatever. It's like mm-hmm. all these movement, like the same movements that I mentioned before, pull-ups, push-ups, deadlifts, squats, uh, rows, overhead press, like all of those things are going to be beneficial for almost any athlete in the appropriate dosages and with the appropriate parameters uh, surrounding those things from like a sets, reps, load, speed um, standpoint. So the funny thing is like you're talking about getting too specific. Um, I've actually did this and I I will say, I actually think it, it gave me positive effect. I bought a, um, cause there everybody buys them and then never uses them. I bought a total gym off of Craigslist and then attached Vasa trainer paddles to it. And oh, cool. So as, so I picked it up for like 50 bucks and then my coach had Vasa trainer paddles. So I, it is not my whole strength workout. We have a whole other, other things I do for my strength with route. But like when I come home from the pool, I've done my pool set. I do my strength stuff and then I come home, get on the total gym. I can lay down on it, do basically fly with, with the, uh, best trainer paddles. And I've used that to help build strength. Cause like my limiter, um, for anything, be it swimming or running or whatever, is always like max power. I'm a terrible sprinter, just terrible. So yeah. I, it's helped me a lot bring that, that high end power up so that I can slowly start to build my, my threshold pace in yeah. the pool. Yeah. So I, that's I, been any, I think that's great. And I would, I don't have any problem with that. Um, like, I like, that's a great recommendation. I think the, the Vasta trainer that like, that's a, that's the appropriate amount of specificity, especially right. given like, this is your weakness. Therefore you need to train it. Right. Right. Um, the, the best example would probably be running with ankle weights. Uh, yeah. Sounds good in theory. Um, but changing the, like the proportions of your, the proportional weights of your lower body, we all like, it's just gonna, it's not mimicking the same mechanics as you would have when you're really running. So wearing a weighted vest, um, would be a little bit of a better approach because now it's concentrating the weight closer to your center of gravity, um, or doing resisted sprints with, a bungee cord or a parachute or running up a hill like those are all better options than using ankle weights yeah yeah well yeah think about it too like 
as you're saying ankle weights, I'm even thinking about like almost like feeling through the motion. I'm like, I'm going to have more impact in my knees and in the way my foot's going to plant is probably going to be different because of that. The amount of force you're going to have to apply to move the ankle weight, it's going to, it's going to flip out your, your foot farther, faster, which is going to make you more prone to like heel strike. And you don't want that. So like, yeah, trying to adjust for that would be really odd. I, if I think you would end up, yeah, like you said, end up working on, you would improve some muscles, but not the muscles that you need to actually run faster. Yeah. From a, like, yeah, it's going to give you a training effect, but the te- like, as much as we want the training effect, we want the training effect with the technique boost, right? Right. So it's not just about putting in the mileage or the yardage, but it's putting in the perfect mileage or like maintaining proper technique or, you know, striving for better technique uh, under fatigue and with higher training volumes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one thing I saw on your, your social media is you like you spend, it seems like a lot of time um, kind of, I'll say dispelling myths or like trying to educate people on like what's going on. You've got the graphics and like, you're like, you're working hard. So, it, so anybody listening to this, or if you're watching on YouTube, um, we'll plug Travis's social media here at the end too, but check that out. Cause he's got a lot of good information and shareable graphics and all kinds of stuff. So, um, lots of good stuff there, but where, so where do you, is it just a marketing thing? Like we were talking kind of marketing before we got going. Is it just a marketing thing where you're like, Hey, then people can talk to me or, or where does it, the idea come from where you're like, all right, let's get rid of these kind of bad thoughts or, or myths that people have about all these different workout processes. Yeah. So I think a lot of it is, um, like just inspired by the things that I hear other people say and see, Mm -hmm. um, on social media. Um, like a good example, recent, I, this might've been the most recent one, um, was like somebody came out and said, he said that, uh, like heavy bilateral squats and deadlifts hurt his back. And, um, that's fine. Like <laughs> that, that's true. I, I know that he has a history of back problems and he prefers to do unilateral exercises like split squats, um, lunges, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. instead of like barbell back squats and barbell deadlifts. Totally fine. Um, but I felt like the connotation, uh, I didn't feel like he gave the appropriate amount of nuance to say like, I have a history of back pain um, and it's exacerbated when I, when I do these lifts. Therefore, in my training and in my client's training, I do this. It was just kind of like a meme showing that squats and deadlifts break your back and that the problem with that is like with the appropriate amount of context no problem but when somebody who doesn't have uh, like any sort of prior knowledge about any of this Mm -hmm. sees that they're that kind of reinforces these negative beliefs like oh okay uh like i heard my doctor or i heard some experts say that squats and deadlifts are bad and now this is confirming it so now i'm afraid to ever lift anything Um, and that is just, it's like a debilitating narrative and belief process Mm -hmm. Sure, for certain people, those exercises are not going to be right for them or for for them at the moment. Um, but there are plenty of people who can do those exercises safely, um, and with heavy loads and not have a problem. Um, so it's just about the appropriate amount of nuance and realizing that every person's different. And so that's kind of the issue with any blanket statement. Like, oh, this exercise is bad or even, oh, this exercise is good. Like nothing is universally true about that. And so that I made a post um, just kind of trying to elaborate on that. And that's sort of where where I've gone with a lot of these things, like trying to dispel the good versus bad and just provide the appropriate amount of nuance. And I think like anybody who is in the in the movement realm and trying to educate people we're usually good intention, right? We're trying to mm-hmm. keep people safe and give them a training effect. Um, but I, I think what some people don't realize is that like different people are coming in with different prior experiences and knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so if you tell the person who's already scared, if you give them like this kind of scary uh, message, that's just going to reinforce those beliefs and it's going to make them more fearful 
which could actually contribute to them having pain down the line. Mm-hmm. Versus if you give the same message to some idiot who's already doing stupid stuff in the gym, like maybe that is going to be helpful for them. Um, so, but it's that, but that basically means is that one, you can't just like put out one message to the world because you have different people coming in with different conceptions and misconceptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of my, just trying to give people more information, raise more awareness about these things, that there's always two sides of every story um, and that it's never black and white. And so the infographics that I've been putting out kind of, uh, I think they, they attract the eye a little bit and hopefully that gets more people uh, engaging with them. And I'm, after I finish my PhD, I'm tinkering with the idea of kind of combining them all and making like one resource where they're, they're all in one place and I can kind of just kind of go into more detail. Uh, I haven't figured out whether that's just going to be like a free giveaway on my blog or if I'm going to try to sell it right now, I don't really sell anything besides personal training. So mm-hmm. might be a good idea to actually sell something, but, <laughs> and it's probably going to probably gonna take me a, a while to put it together. So maybe, maybe I should try to get myself compensated for it, but I, yeah. I just want, mostly, I just want the information out there for people um, because I think that it's, there's so many sources of misinformation and there are so many sources of, limited information like people who are are like i said who are well-intentioned or who are just trying to keep people safe and don't realize the damaging narratives that those messages can have right well it's like i think i think in in especially when we're talking about like sharing things on social media which you know i found the infographics you had on your facebook page um it's like it's easier to make a meme or or something very short and share it and get people to share it versus what I refer to as fighting the good fight and being like, in any case, going back to what we said in the very beginning, like it depends. (laughs) And then from there, here's the whole spiel about everything you need to know for your particular situation. Yeah. And and I appreciate that you're doing that. I feel like I try to do the same thing in sometimes I find myself, especially here on the podcast, being very, very wordy because it's like there's so much to say about this one particular small situation, and it's not just a simple answer most of the time. Even if the, even if you have all the experience in the world, it's like, well, there's ten thousand situations we could talk about right now, depending on what's what's happening. We have to diagnose that and go through all the options, and I think it's overwhelming to a lot of people. But then I also think there is a smaller segment of people, and those are the people that you have, the, I think, the greatest chance of affecting that need that information that will see, like, the stuff you're putting out and go, finally, somebody can actually, like, explain it all to me and, and, and go, oh, like, it totally makes sense now. I get why that other thing doesn't make sense, even though, you know, everybody liked it and everybody shared it. Yeah, that's the problem is that people – easier to think in black and white so people just want to know are squats and deadlifts bad right they're good and the the message that squats and deadlifts are bad is more attention grabbing it's more sexy it's gonna share farther and wider uh and so that's kind of the challenge that i'm fighting and i'm sure you're fighting too it's like i'm gonna put out the I'm going to use all 2,200 characters in the Instagram thing or right. write a 1,500-word blog post about whether you should be able to crawl like a baby and whether that matters um, because I think it's important. But it's going to be harder to sell, just not not monetarily, but sell the people on actually reading it when mm. uh, your message is more nuanced uh, and more shades of gray. Yeah, I think... And I could be wrong because I, you know, I'm not. I don't think either of us is is uh, a massive um, has a massive audience at this point. But my theory, and we'll see how this plays out over age uh, and time, is that if you are consistent with giving good information and you stay around for the long haul, that that will pay dividends in time because you have basically a a portfolio of work over 
two years, five years, yeah. 10 years that, of here's all the information that I've been trying to share with everyone. Right. That's, that's the challenge. Like people see people with huge followings and think that it happened overnight. Um, and it certainly doesn't. Um, right. And the, but the way that you become regarded as an expert is through consistently putting out that good information and becoming people's go-to resource. Mm -hmm. um, and like I've, over the last maybe one to two years, like I've had a lot of like people who I used to be friends with and sort of lost touch with or just acquaintances reach out to me uh, for help with their training programs. And it's like, it's really cool. It's like, wow, this is working. Like I wasn't purposely trying to like uh, get this message to this group of people who I am connected with but haven't spoken to, yet they're seeing, they're interested in fitness. And they're, they've been seeing my posts for a while. And when they realize that they want help, I'm the person who comes to mind, which mm -hmm. is awesome, right? Like that's how you want to be. And the only way you get to be that way, well, two ways, one, by putting out really good information and then two, by being a sleazy marketer. Right. And I would rather like keep my integrity and just put out really good information to a smaller group of people than kind of like selling out and going that route. So Right. Yeah, if I have 4,000 followers instead of 40,000 followers, uh, so be it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't think you meant to, to uh, make the connotation this way. But for clarification's sake, um, as an entrepreneur and somebody who does try to do marketing, there is, we often refer to, and I think Travis is familiar with this too, I'm going to assume, there is the light side and the dark side of marketing where like when you learn about marketing you learn about the things that people care about and i think you know correct me if i'm wrong but i think when you're referring to sleazy marketers you're talking about people who are using those what we refer to as triggers or pain points that people have and basically trick them into purchasing things they don't need and and making empty promises basically to to solve your problem versus the light side which is like hey i can solve your problem but you know maybe i'm not perfect at writing the copy that you know makes you fearful and then tells you i can solve your problem so there you know there are two sides to that just like not all marketers are bad not you know not yeah, all, think, non marketers are good all that kind of thing right i think i think it's a it's a fine line that you walk where yeah, I'm gonna like I'm willing to use a more provocative title to a blog post to get somebody to the blog, right. and then I'm gonna give them great information. Um, but I don't want to create this uh, like damaging narrative uh, to get people there. Right. Um, and so yeah, like I, the the counter example is like you said, like. Uh, I'm the only person who knows the secret to X. Right. Everybody else is wrong. Now buy my $300 product where I help you like get you out of pain. Um, blah, 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 blah. It's like, right. I, I just, I can't get behind that. Right. And, when, and often, and I'll admit like when I was like 18, 19, I sure I bought a bunch of just like, bullshit get rich quick kind of things before i finally found eventually found my way into a more um mature and uh, positive entrepreneurial community but like those things they work because they prey on people's desperation to solve their problem or fill their hopes dreams and desires and that's where the sleazy marketer thing comes in where it's yeah. like sales and marketing by itself is neither good nor bad. No, it's just the, like how it's wielded. Right. If, if you think of it from the standpoint of like, I'm qualified to help people. Right. And I have this service, whether it's an ebook or whether it's my personal train, like online or in-person personal training that like people would benefit from. Like I'm going to help people get stronger, more confident, um, better know their way around the gym, help them with their sports performance. Uh, if only they can have the opportunity to work with me. Now, then from that standpoint, like I would be doing people a disservice by not letting people know about this, right? Right. Um, so that's, but it's it's how you go about it. And it, yeah, it's, it's a fine line between 
getting the word out without like preying on people's fears or like calling everybody else an idiot. That's sort of right. Thing. Right. Well, I think it's, I think it's the case of like where what's the saying one's one rotten apple spoils the bunch where it's like somebody does something sleazy or, or underhanded. And then that gives the rest of anybody trying to sell something like a bad name. Like, you know, I, I had this connotation too. Yeah. Like when I, when I went to work at, um, New Balance. So I, I helped fit shoes for runners and people with medical conditions for several years. And when I arrived, I was like, you know, I don't want to be like a sleazy car salesman. I don't want to do that. And I never took that e- approach, even though the owners at the time, they didn't really, they were kind of in between the sleazy car salesman and where I am now, where it's like provide value first. Mm-hmm. They were somewhere in the middle and just the way they presented it still didn't convince me that your, your whole goal is to solve a customer's problem. Um, so it's like, I think when people get that bad experience, wherever it is, then it's like defenses are up no matter who you are now. Cause I don't want to get, you know, tricked again. So, um, Travis, before we run out of time, I have two questions with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them I ask everybody at the end of the of the episode this year. But first, I have to ask you, what happened to the beard? That's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. <laughs> so, so first, I'll, I'll tell the story of the beard. It's not really a good story. It's that uh, J- January of 2019, um, maybe like three weeks in, I realized that I hadn't shaved. Mm. Um, and I had like a little bit of a beard and I was like, huh, I wonder like how long I can go with this. Like kind of enjoying the way this is looking. Uh, let me see this through. So fast forward eight months, uh, to August of 2019, I had a beard down to here and that like, so all the pictures of me, everything like beard hair out, just nuts, mountain man. Um, and I liked it, but I, I don't know if you've ever had a beard. It's like, I, I, I have patchy spots. I'm incapable. Yeah. So, so, I, and I appreciated my ability to grow this full beard, but it was difficult to maintain, um, just cause you have to trim, uh, which is, you know, it's a little bit less work than shaving every day. Um, but there, there's more upkeep to it than I think maybe people realize. And like food would get stuck as I was trying to eat. So and then the but the the real nail in the coffin was that the girlfriend despised it um and she for months was like begging me to get rid of it mm-hmm. and so finally uh one night <laughs> so this is a funny story this this part of the story is funny uh one night i snuck out of the house to my friend's house who cuts my hair mm-hmm. um this was at like i don't know 11 p.m. um i come back uh Full head, fully, sh- fully shaved head and face. And I go to get into bed and my girlfriend, who doesn't usually wake up when I get into bed, she like kind of stirs and thinks that it's an intruder um, because I don't have the beard anymore. And she's, right. I, she, when she went to bed two hours ago, I had it. Right. Uh, so she's like, what, what's going on? And I'm like, just go back to sleep. I wanted to surprise her because yeah. it was nice. You know, she'd been wanting me to get rid of the beard and, whatever um and so she she reaches over for me and feels to make sure that i don't have a leg and that's how she knows that i'm not an intruder (laughs) um so uh, anyway it didn't work quite as planned and um i sometimes miss the beard i thought it looked good but i probably will never grow it that long again Mm -hmm. um but it was good to i'm glad i did it once so that's Mm -hmm. that's the long story of the beard and it's it's funny because if you like a lot of my social media, I think I probably still have it. I didn't really, I don't know. I, I've, I don't take pictures and post that often. So like if I, like if I had come on today with a long beard, you probably wouldn't have been surprised, right. uh, but I have no beard. So I think I was like, surprised either way, but there's usually a story when this, like when it's gone from big beard to yeah. no beard. So it's weird because I don't really, because I like, okay. So I had a beard for eight months out of 30 years of life. I don't really think of myself as somebody with a beard, yet I had a beard. So if you met me 
between January and August of 2019, you would think I'm somebody who has a beard. Right. And now, right. You, but that's not how I identify. So it, it was kind of like this, like weird, like just dynamic. Because I don't know, not that having a beard has like a really serious connotation one way or another, but it is. It's something about a person. Like people who have beards tend to have beards, and people who don't tend not to. And I don't. Know. So I, and I, you know, I've had. Uh, I've had interviews, um, for job positions for after I finished school. And I'm, I'm, I guess like going to an interview with a big beard, uh, that would, it just speaks one thing about a person versus showing up clean shaved. Of course I have these like goofy hipster glasses. So, um, <laughs> but that's, I don't know. I, this, the goofy hipster glasses are definitely my personality. The beard, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's definitely a difference. I know, I used to have long hair in high school, like down shoulder length. Yeah. And I know for a fact I did not get a job at Best Buy because I had the hair. And the reason I know that is because a friend worked at Best Buy and basically had heard from whatever the hiring manager was like, like doesn't have the look to work here. Even though probably a work ethic, you know, I, I'm a hard worker, but they they weren't interested in even giving me an I, interview because I, I had long hair. Yeah, I struggle with that, and I understand. I understand the rationale for selecting people who have a certain look to work, but it's like if you're just gonna if you're gonna do a great job, it shouldn't really matter how you look, but it does. And right. so, as a prospective employee somewhere, do I kind of uh, fight for my right to look the way I want to look, or do I because that that's who I am, or for at least for the job interview, do I show up clean cut, you know, well dressed? Right. And then once they get to know me, then probably switch to the funky glasses, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's tough. All right. Well, so now I have to ask you my final question. Um, and this is something I'm interested in from everybody uh, because everybody has a different perspective. So I'm asking everybody this year uh, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Wow. I think that it's to test your limits, um, especially for me. Uh, that's really what it was about. It was like seeing what my what my breaking point was, right? Or mm -hmm. just just trying to get so close to that, um, or or even expanding that over time. Um, and I, I remember. Look at like looking around at some of my high school teammates who weren't working as hard as me, and I I was a little bit snooty about it probably um, because I was just giving it my all, and I I would look over and see people like getting out and taking a water break or stretching or whatever, um, not because they needed to really per se, just because they were lazy or whatever, and I was like, what what why is that person afraid of hard work? Mm -hmm. And that that's not really fair of me. Uh, in hindsight, to think of it that way, um, and not everybody took it as seriously as I took it. Um, but for me, it was it was about testing myself and seeing what my limits were. And now, when I look back on that, I can think like anything that I'm to go through now, like probably isn't going to be as demanding as what I put my body through then. Uh, and so I can kind of use that. Uh, um, just to remember, like, I'm, I'm resilient um, because I proved to myself over and over again that uh, something that was really hard I could get through. Um, and so personally, that's what sport means to me. And uh, I think probably other people can relate to that, too, I would think. It's a good answer. Like I said everybody's different, so I loved hearing, you know, how everybody – takes it and approaches it because like even with running say everybody that runs like what we get from running is different and it so i kind of have a history as a i majored in psychology in, in college one of my majors and so i just have an interest in kind of the human mind the human spirit and sure how people behave why they behave so that's why i kind of i love that question um, especially from people like you that have worked so hard for so long for certain goals and like I, I say that 
that would be like like all of that would apply to the the competitive thing that I, I did towards swimming. Right now, if you ask me that, my answer would be different. Like, yeah, I, I do some hand cycling, I do some recreational swimming, I do some rock climbing. The rock climbing, I'm starting to get a little competitive with, but it's mostly just for fun. Mm-hmm. I'm not like, uh, I don't necessarily aspire to like the elite, to be elite at that. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm maybe, maybe tinkering with the thought of that. But anyway, like now I exercise because I enjoy it and because it is a good outfit outlet for me health wise and my, you know, my schoolwork benefits by being physically active and I, it, it helps me think more clearly. I also want to be an example for my personal training clients. So all of those things, um, you know, I guess it's sort of the difference between sport and recreational exercise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Travis, if people want to see what you're doing, follow you, see those infographics, especially, um, mm-hmm. where can they find you? I'm on mostly Instagram these days, uh, and my handle is fitness underscore pollinator. And then I'm on Facebook. Uh, I believe the public figure account is Travis Pollen dash fitness pollinator. And then my website is fitnesspollinator.com. So those, if, any of if those. If you're places. on YouTube and not on iTunes, then you will have the benefit of having all of those things on the screen. Oh yeah. Uh, sometimes I get them in the description, but uh, it's always nice when you're yeah. looking at the video and then you can see it. <laughs> yeah. If anybody Googles my name, I think all of those places should pop yeah, up. Yeah, you come up. You come up I, pretty quick. I spend a lot of time on all of those platforms, and I'm always happy to interact and answer any questions that I'm able to answer or. Uh, Hopefully not pretend to answer too many questions that I don't know the answer to. <laughs> you get, I mean, you get that sometimes, right? Like uh, I'm a rehabilitation sciences major. So people assume that I know a lot about exercise physiology maybe. And I know next to nothing about exercise physiology. So I'm, I'm quick to uh, uh, defer those sorts of questions. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good, Travis. Uh, thanks for spending some time with me today. I uh, hope you have a good rest of the day. You too.